few weeks ago, my wife, Jen, um, my son, Nick, and I uh, made the 20-plus-hour drive. The rest of my family made the two-and-a-half-hour flight, but I'm not bitter. <laughs> a flight into the enormous Punta Gorda Airport in southern Florida, where together our family converged for a few days of just some uninterrupted time. My wife and my kids have always loved the beach, and so whenever possible, at least, you know, like once a year, I love to be able to try to get them there. And I will admit, um, okay, it's not just they that like it, I kind of like it, you know what I'm saying? Actually, I really like it. There's something about the ocean, there's something about the waves, the rhythm, the bigness of all that. I mean, if you ever actually look at the ocean and just think about all the creatures there, I don't know how anybody can't believe in a most amazing God. The waves, the sun, the sand, and with all of that come shells. Oh yeah, shells. It's just a part of what you do. And so I, I thought, um, because it's a part of what we do, that I might just kind of share um, a few of those with you this morning, kind of give you an idea of um, the amazing fun that can be had. Um, these are kind of cool. I don't know what you call all these, but Nick loves these kind of, the skinny kind that kind of wrap together. And, and uh, then there are the kind that I think of like a shell, like, like the shell service station, right? It, that's how a shell's supposed to look. And, and, and you got these kind and these kind these kind, I mean, just, just cool stuff. You got the conch shells, right? Little conch shells that work like that. Whoops. But the ones I really like the most are these kind. And, and again, I don't know what they're all called, um, but it's, they're wide at the top and they really go down to narrow and they got crazy beautiful um, little colors in there. And I realize that one's a little small. So let me get one a little bigger, the same kind, but but you, can, kind of, you can't see that one either, really. It's kind of small, so let me get one. Let me find one a little bigger that, that I happened to find while, while we were there. Isn't that, isn't that pretty cool? But then came the moment. Oh, check that baby out. That's what I'm, yeah, there should be some whistling going on. Check, check that out. And yes, I did find it. Yes, I did. Isn't that cool? That's my shell collection. That's pretty impressive. I've, honestly, I've never found a shell this big in my entire life because I was pretty excited about it. I really was. I, I want to share something really personal with you today. God actually uses the shells that we find each year to what I call realign my heart, keep it on track. And here's what I mean by that. About 20 years ago, which right at the time that I came to be pastor at Heart of Life, I heard a sermon, a message, a talk by a pastor by the name of John Piper. And it was actually a talk that John Piper was making to a uh, group of college-age students. There were, there were just, I don't even remember what the number was, just a, just a huge sea of college students that he's speaking to. And what I remember out of that talk was really two stories that he told. The first story was about how three weeks earlier in Piper's church, 
two ladies, their names were Ruby and Laura. They had been killed in Cameroon. Now, Ruby was um, over 80 years old. I believe she had been a nurse for most of her life, but, but, but even during the time of being a nurse, and then when she retired, she, she would just spend her life pouring out for this great purpose of making Jesus known to the unreached, the poor, the sick in Cameroon. And then Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, also pushing 80 years old, she chose to join Ruby in Cameroon in that work. Three weeks earlier, the brakes gave way. Over the cliff they went, and they both were killed instantly. And Piper said, I asked my church, I asked my people, was that a tragedy? Was it a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision, spent in unheralded service to the, to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus. And they did it two decades after almost all of their American counterparts had retired to throw away their lives on trifles in Florida and New Mexico. And then Piper said, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. And he read a story from the Reader's Digest. He admitted that none of those college students knew what in the world Reader's Digest was, but it, he read the story anyway, and I've never forgotten it. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, playing softball and collecting shells. And Piper turns to that crowd and he says, that is a tragedy. And he said, people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to buy that dream. And he said, with all my heart, I'm begging you, don't buy that dream. The American dream of a nice house, nice car, nice job, nice family, nice retirement, collecting shells. So that as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did is, here it is, Lord, my shell collection and look at my boat. And he capped it with one statement. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Every year, when our time together as a family is done and I get back in that vehicle and I make that 20 plus hour drive back to you, with shells rattling around in a box. Those words every single year rattle around in my soul so that I am reminded of what I am called to. 
Now, don't get me wrong, hunting shells with my family for a few days, it is enjoyable. It is. Creation of God, I, I enjoy it. But that's not what I live for. And you know what? I don't want it to be what my kids live for. This life is not about how comfortable I can make it. I don't do this if that were the case. But this life involves a war. And I'm not using that like a metaphor. This life involves a war. And so I'm telling you up front today, these words today are a little bit intense, but it's because it's driven by a passage, it's driven by a text, it's driven by some scripture that is intense. It is an older father, Paul, who is calling out to, to a young son, Timothy. It is this call of don't waste your life. Intense language driven by intense love. All right? Hear it with that heart. Verse 18 is where we are in 1 Timothy. And here's what Paul says to him. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well. Timothy, fight the battle well. The word fight is the Greek word from which we get our English word strategy. So it's like a soldier would strategize. He would think about how to approach this thing. The, the word battle is really more of what we would call the word campaign. It's not a one-time battle. It's really a war. It is an ongoing, never-ending fight. And the word well, we would use the word noble. We would use the word excellent. In other words, it is this intense call to Timothy. Timothy, you got to fight this war with everything you've got. Uh, what war? What is this about? And so today, I want to take this opportunity to teach you a little bit about this war. To teach you a little bit about an enemy that is real. I don't like to talk about him. I don't spend very many sermons talking about him because I don't even like to give him any screen time. But there comes a moment where we need to understand the war. This is not really a physical war. It's not even just an earthly war. The primary level of this war is between God and the highest creature he ever created. We call him Satan. It's a war between God and his truth and Satan and his lies. A war between God's will and Satan's will. A war between holy angels and demons. And it even filters down to involve every human being. That means you and me. So let me give you the backdrop. Originally, there was no war. Everything was perfect. But something happened that began this war that has not ended. I'm going to show you something in just a minute from the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is one of the books in the first part of your Bible, Old Testament. Ezekiel was a prophet. And there's a place where Ezekiel is bringing prophecies against a, a, a king called Tyre, a city actually called Tyre. And, and it's just this ungodly city on which God is going to bring judgment. But in speaking against the king of Tyre, Ezekiel goes beyond just that king himself. 
and actually starts to speak to the source of the rebellion behind the rebellious king and behind the rebellious city of Tyre. In other words, the king of Tyre was just a pawn in the hand of someone bigger. And he's actually the one behind all the godless nations of this world. And here's what Ezekiel says as he speaks to this king. Check it out, Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12. Here's what he says to him. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now, all of a sudden, we get the picture that we're not talking about just some some person. This is, we're not, there's not perfection. There's this level of beauty, this level of perfection. When he uses the word seal, think of the word like when you seal an envelope. You only seal an envelope when what? It's complete. When everything on the inside is complete, that's the word he's using to describe this one. Let's keep going. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now here's my question, when did this battle begin? And a lot of people will teach, well the battle began before God created everything. I would submit to you that this text kinda argues that a little bit. In fact, I I think it might argue it a lot. We're given a description of the enemy in Eden in all of his beauty. It may be that it took place after God creates Eden, after he creates the world, after the garden is occupied. Could that be when it takes place? Because right here he's described in Eden, the garden of God. Let's keep going. Every precious stone adorned you. Like, what does that mean? Well, after this, I didn't list them all because I was afraid I couldn't pronounce them all. Nine stones are listed. Those nine stones are the same nine stones that you will find listed in the breastplate of the high priest. God, as he constructed, as he designed that high priest who once a year would go into the very presence of God, the breastplate that he wore, these beautiful stones, they reflected the glory and the beauty of God. Those are the same stones that adorn this one. Your settings and mountings were made of gold on the day you were created, they were prepared. Verse 14. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. For so I ordained you. The Jews also called them a covering angel, a covering cherub. The reason was because on the um, Ark of the Covenant, remember the box that God designed is made of gold. God's glory would shine above that box. On top of that box, there were two angels. Their wings came together. Where those angel wings would meet was called the mercy seat. Those two angels were often referred to as the covering angels. They were thought of as the, as the, the heads of all that. They were seen as the most powerful. That's who he is. Let's keep going. You are on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. It's just describing the very dwelling place of God. Angels are not omnipresent. That means they can't be everywhere at once. This particular angel was not created and then commissioned out here, out there. His role was within the very dwelling place of God. Let's keep going. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness 
was found in you. And that was the day that the war began. That was the day the war started. Ezekiel gives us a glimpse of what this might be. Verse 17, your heart became what? Proud. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and your corrupt, you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. In all of his glory, in all of his beauty, in all of his splendor, in all of his wisdom, he became proud. Isaiah gives us a little deeper picture of what this proud looks like. Isaiah is also a prophet. The, 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 the judgment in the book of Isaiah is, is dealing with Babylon, but just like Tyre, there's a greater, there's a greater enemy behind um, Babylon. And so here's how it reads in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. Now that's familiar language to us because Jesus at one place is called the bright and morning star. That's interesting. It's not saying here that Satan and Jesus are equal. They're not. But it does use, interestingly enough, some of the same words to describe how glorious a being he is. You've fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. Let's just keep reading. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I think the stars here represent angels. He's not willing to be on an angel level. He's, he wants to be above. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zephon. Let's keep going. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. The clouds refer to God's glory. I will make myself like the most high. But... You are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. It's interesting. He became jealous. He sees his power. He sees his glory. He wants to be equal with God. And it makes sense to us then that when we get to the Garden of Eden, we read that temptation. The temptation to Eve is, if you do this, you will be like who? God. Eve, if you eat of this, you will be like God. It's just a reflection of his own proud heart, and it's still his play. Come on, everybody wants to be their own God. Nobody wants anybody else calling the shots. Nobody else wants anybody else directing their life. We want to be God. We want it to be about us. We, we want the glory. It's the same play, and there's one behind it all. Since that moment, this battle has been on. God in his truth against Satan and his lies. Holy angels against demons, and it even filters down to every human being. I want to show you one more place in the Old Testament, just so that you understand his play. In Job, we get a very interesting picture of an encounter that happens between the enemy and God. This is, this is how it reads in Job chapter 1. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. It reminds us, Satan, you understand, is not in hell. 
No, he, 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 he roams, right, to and fro. It is, it is this, this picture of his realm and his restlessness as he endeavors to thwart the plan and the purpose of God. By the way, Satan means enemy or adversary. So in the Old Testament, the determination is, is there a the before it? Is there a definite article? When there's a definite article, the enemy is translated Satan. When there is no definite article, just enemy is translated enemy. This is him. Look what happens. Let's keep going. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. God, let's talk here. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flock and his herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. You know, what, you know what Satan's argument is? God, you say you got a man named Job. I'm betting he's not really your man. He just likes your blessing. He just likes it when you treat him good. He likes it when you give him lots of crops and herds. He, he likes having a nice house. He likes the fact that you blessed him with kids. Hey, God, you take that stuff away. Job won't love you. He'll doubt you. He won't trust you. You let stuff start happening in his life that's not good, he'll start questioning where you are, God. He'll start wondering why you've abandoned him. He'll start wondering if you're real at all. Oh my goodness. Anybody ever fought that battle? Anybody ever recognize that in your own life where, man, when things are going good, God is good. We'll stand up here and we will sing it. We will sing with all we've got. God, you're so good. But you start taking stuff away. And we start singing, God, where are you? What's Satan's ploy? His ploy is... I'll do anything I can. I'll do anything I can to diminish the power, the glory, the work, the purpose, the will of God. This man you call righteous, I don't want him to trust you. I don't want him to declare your greatness. I'll shut him down. Whew. That's his play. In the New Testament, he's given a lot of names. Accuser. Adversary, deceiver, enemy, evil one, father of lies, murderer, prince of the power of the air, ruler of the world, tempter. And from the New Testament, we learn that when Satan falls, when God cast him out, Satan takes with him about a third of the angels. A third. So when Satan says, I want to be God, about a third of the angels follow him. Now, we're pretty sure that angels don't reproduce, right? Jesus said angels don't marry and all that stuff like we do. Jesus actually said that. Angels don't die. And so uh, Satan, he, he still has this force of about a third. Jesus said that hell was created for the devil and his angels. Do you know that? That means hell is eternal because the angels are eternal. 
Well, how many angels are there? I don't know. I know there are places where it talks about 10,000 times 10,000. And I do know that the largest Greek, um, the, the largest Greek word for numerical amount is 10,000. That's as big as it goes. So in the sense of 10,000 times 10,000 means how many angels are there? I don't know, guess. And then the answer is, nope, there's more. There's more than you think. My point is, Satan doesn't do his warfare alone. Although he is tremendously powerful, he cannot be everywhere all the time. He's not omnipresent. His work is enhanced because of most of those third of the angelic host that's with him. Now, I say most because the Bible tells us that a little portion of them are already chained. They're already chained. You can, you can look it up. You can read it. Jude tells us about it. So from Eden, the garden, to Genesis chapter 6, that's a crazy story in and of itself, to Jesus being born, all the little babies being killed, what, what, what's the play? He's always attempting to destroy the work of Jesus. He's always attempting to destroy Jesus' line. And now he continues to fight against the work of Christ through his what? Through the church. Through the church. He will continue to fight against Jesus when he returns until one day he will forever be consigned to the pit of hell. That's how the story ends. And he knows it. But until then, hear me, we are engaged in an intimate, personal conflict with the supernatural enemy of God. But let me assure you, he is not personally interested in you. <laughs> he, he doesn't attack you because he is personally interested in you. If he attacks you, it's because he hates God. That's why he does it. It's, it's not our value. It's the fact that he hates God. So only as you make an impact for the glory of God or to keep you from doing so, that's why he does what he does. But today, a few moments ago, we witnessed something incredibly supernatural in that baptistry a little bit ago. I don't know if you understand the gift that God gave you from just showing up today and watching that and to hear from the heart of a young man who for a while, for a while has believed in God but who has resisted those first steps of obedience to say, God, no, 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 but now to say, I'm in and shout it. And to see God so work in his life that he would openly declare to us in that moment. And when I woke up this morning, God told me that the way I saw this person was not right. Therefore, I love you. That's God at work. That's supernatural transformation. This week we got the word that 10 Ten of those kids in the Project Nick shelter in, in Nepal have chosen 
to say, I'm going to follow Jesus with my life? Every once in a while, somebody will ask the question, Jeff, to be honest with you, why does it sometimes feel like heart of life is always facing like a struggle here, a struggle there, a struggle here, a struggle there? And the simple answer that I always give is an enemy attacks where the work of God is actually taking place. An enemy attacks where the work of God is actually taking place. And so when, when, when the unreached, when the, when the poor, when, when the lost, our eyes are being opened, whether it's, whether it's kids in Myanmar or Nepal or wherever they are in the world, whether it's people who are giving their life to Jesus, whether it is, whether it is the, the ladies in sex trafficking that are, that are being rescued out right here in Kansas City, whether it is the poor who are being fed, I'm telling you, There is a real enemy who wants all that shut down because all of that has the potential for people to stand and shout of the greatness of God, and he hates God. If there is no resistance, there may actually be very little work of God. He loves to blind people to the truth. That's what scripture says. And so when people see the truth, just like we celebrated a little bit, that's the Holy Spirit who overcomes. He loves to shut down families. That's what this enemy does. He loves to destroy families. I I, I wish I never had to say this, but I have to say it too many times when I look people in the eye and say, if God led you out of your marriage and there was no unfaithfulness and there was no abuse, then God did not lead you out of your marriage to a new partner. Somebody else did that. It's what he does. Here's how Jesus put it in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 10. Yeah, that shouldn't surprise us. The thief. The thief comes only, we're going to get this. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's Jesus. Is that clear enough for us? I've told you this before. The enemy is not here to trip you up. The enemy is here to take you out. That's his goal. And Paul... That is the intensity with which he brings to Timothy saying, this is no game, this is a war, this is really life and death. And so back to verse 18, here's what he says to him. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command. Fight this battle well. Fight this war with everything you got. The word command is a military term, as you might expect. It means responsibility, it means obligation, it brings, it's the word, it's duty. We don't, we don't talk about those things because we like getting together and talking about freedom and talking about joy and talking about peace. But I'm telling you that responsibility and obligation and duty are not the enemy of freedom and joy and peace. Sometime, just read what Jesus says in Luke chapter 17. It's like verse 7 to 10. I can't do it today. It's too much. But just read it. Luke chapter 17, verse 7 to 10, and see what Jesus says about responsibility. A soldier knows there are certain things you do that when you do it, they say, don't call me a hero. This is just my duty. Yes, we are sons and daughters of a king. 
Yes, we are free. And love is why we do what we do. But we are also soldiers. And we are also servants. And even with love being why we do what we do, there is a responsibility and there is obligation and there is a duty that is attached to that. Sometimes we live in an undisciplined culture. We live in a self-indulgent culture. And so sometimes we see in the church, what happens is it's really just a lot of people who operate from a perspective that whatever they particularly want to do or don't want to do, that's what governs their life. How do you know what to do? That's what I want to do. We know very little of duty, but you can't win a war without it. So let me show you real quick. Verse 19, verse 19, here's where he goes with Timothy. Holding on to faith and a good conscience. Timothy, you got to fight this battle with everything you got. You got to fight this war with everything you got. Holding on to faith and a good conscience. You don't win this war with little formulas. You don't win this war by going off to camp and getting a little zap that'll carry you through. That's not how you win this war. This war is won through trust and obey. This war is won through faith. God, I trust you. And God, I'm going to live out what you call me to live. I'm going to live your truth. It's won through faith and good conscience, trust and a pure life, walking with Jesus daily, life submitted to him. And if you don't, if you don't, which some have rejected, so they have suffered, what's the word here? Check it out. Shipwreck, interesting word. Shipwreck with regards to the faith. To not walk by faith, to not walk by the truth that God gives, to ignore what God says is like having a boat where you remove the rudder. Just take it off the boat. Now, what moves, what what directs the boat? The wind. The wind and the waves direct the boat. You take the rudder off the boat, what what, what directs it? Nothing, except the wind and the waves. And after enough wind and enough waves, a boat with no rudder ends in a shipwreck. He's saying, Timothy, come on. An enemy comes to take you out. I have come to give you life. I want you to trust me. I want you to believe me when I tell you this, this is where life is found. I want, you to, I want you to follow. I want you to obey. And if you don't, man, this is not going to end well for you. I'm convinced that the enemy's goal for every church is for it to end up looking like what I call a ship graveyard. Isn't that pretty? Isn't that pretty? What a beautiful sight, right? All that rusted, broken metal. I mean, it's like, do you know like what the potential is with this picture? Like, do you know what could be with these boats? How, how much power could be involved if all, if all this was right? How much strength? How much fun? How much joy? But not in the graveyard. 
to our students who just returned from camp. Guys, today I want to challenge you to see the need for discipline in being involved in Bible study and relationships with one another every week. Every week. I, I want to encourage you to understand the soldier part of that, the the responsibility, an obligation even, a duty that is attached to And I'm not saying that, it's, that we're not free in Christ. I'm not. I'm not saying that there's not a joy. I'm not saying that we don't do what we do because we love. But I'm saying, I, like Paul, want you to recognize the need for discipline and being in Bible study every week so that you might know the truth, so that you might be reminded of the truth, so that you might be encouraged to stand in the truth because that's where you're going to find life. And it might be where you help others find life. How about if I told you that being in Bible study might not, not be all about you? It might be about some of these other people that you sit beside that, that you, you care about, whether you've told them or not, and God has put us together to do this together. You cannot fight this without it. You can't. Otherwise, you're not gonna stand in the truth. Otherwise, left on your own, you're gonna start caring more about what people think about you. There's a lot of adults who are still living by that measure. You will let lesser things drive your schedule. And all of a sudden, there will be so many activities that you are involved in that you will choose those over a family that God has given you to give you truth to help you fight. To those of you who lead our students every week, maybe life team leaders, I wanna challenge you to make sure you give them the truth. I wanna challenge you to make sure you point them to and through God's word. Not just conversations, not just discussions, but God's word is what's gonna be the rudder that directs our life. Whew. I told you it was intense. But it's intense words because it's intense what? Love. Listen to where Paul wraps this up. It's real practical. Verse 20, this is how he wraps it up. Among them, these are people who shipwrecked. These are people who chose to take the rudder off the boat. Among them, and he calls names. He names names. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Alexander, we don't really know much about him. Alexander appears in other places in the Bible, but we're not even sure if it's the same Alexander, so we don't know. We don't know who he is really much about him. Hymenaeus, uh, we're much more certain of because he shows up again in 2 Timothy and this time it's with another person and they are teaching a heresy that is spreading throughout the church and Paul uses a word to describe it, gangrene. The bottom line is these guys are leaders in the church at Ephesus who are misleading people, not teaching the truth, telling lies regarding the things of God, that's blasphemy. 
Now, to be honest with you, though, most of us really don't care who these two are. We just want to know what in the world it means to hand them over to Satan. What does that mean? And if I have to just pick one word to help us understand, it would be the word that I would think most people would be most familiar with. It would be the word excommunication, all right? Excommunication, which is the removal of a person from the fellowship in the church. There's only one other place in the Bible that we get this same language of handing somebody over to Satan. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where there's a dude in the church who is, who is committing sexual sin. I'm not going far with this, but I'm saying in a best case scenario, he's sleeping with his stepmom and the whole church is just kind of looking the other direction and Paul's going, whoa, I have handed him over to Satan. Same language. But in both cases, here's what I want you to see. It's about grace. You say, that doesn't sound like grace to me. No, it's about grace. But it's a grace of saying what you're doing is hurting you and what you're doing is hurting the family and we're not gonna allow you to keep doing that and acting as though it's okay, leading others to believe it's okay. We're gonna set some boundaries. You can't eat with us anymore. You can't meet with us anymore. You can't gather with us anymore until you stop walking this destructive path. It is removing a person from under the safety and the security of the Christian community. There's just something about hanging around the church where the grace of God just kind of splashes over even if you don't know him. It's true. We read it in scripture. Even for unbelievers, you hang out around the church and you see some effects of the grace of God. It's a better place to be where grace should be seen. The spirit gives peace, but it's as though they put him out into the cold. They are saying, look, you're going to experience the full weight and the full consequences of your decision. The hope is that you will recognize how insane these decisions are, and then you will turn and you will come back to Jesus. That's the goal. Paul is showing that even a shipwrecked faith is still a faith worth mending. It just may require some severe grace to get there. It's like a surgeon's knife. A surgeon's knife cuts. <laughs> it cuts. We, we would use the language from a, there's a wound, it's a cut. But it's precise and it's for the purpose of bringing healing. I've seen this have to happen in families at times where parents have had to make a decision where a child is actually removed from their house. I mean, maybe it's drugs, maybe it's whatever. It puts everybody else in the house in danger and as a last resort, they have to remove them from the home to experience life without a family. Well, I'm telling you that Jesus loves his bride enough that when somebody, especially a leader, becomes a harm to her, they gotta be removed. This is not the first step. This is the last resort. This is, this is like amputation. That's what I describe it. It's like having to remove a toe in order to save your foot. Or you have to remove a foot in order to, to save a leg. The limb is removed when it's absolutely necessary to save the life. Would it be any different with the body of Christ? And I'm saying if we think this is over the top, right? 
If we walk out of here today going, that, that, that was like, I don't, I, that was weird. That was over the top. That, I don't even know if that's Christian. If that's how we see this, then we don't understand the severity of the war. And we don't understand the power of an enemy. Let me give you some good news. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. So no matter how severe the fight, the battle, the war seems to be at this moment, he wins. And how cool is it to even realize that if God wants to, when he wants to, he can even use Satan to bring about his good purposes. Isn't that wild? God can say, turn him over to Satan, and I'll actually use Satan to turn him back to me. That's the power of the God that we serve. But can I just be honest with you and tell you, you don't want to learn the lesson that way. You you don't want to learn the lesson that way. Some of you have, have chosen to dismantle the rudder from the boat. I don't know how else to say that today, but some of you are just choosing to live life, making decisions, turning directions, and you are not leaning into the truth and the direction that God gives you for life. You're not. I I pray that you understand the clear picture of where Paul says that eventually ends. It it ends in a graveyard because your enemy is not here to trip you up. He is here to take you out. So today our prayer is repent. Repent just means turn back to Jesus. It means can you see how he loves you that even a a, a faith that is shipwrecked, he has not given up on you. A boat with no rudder. But I also want to challenge some of us today because you look like you have a rudder, okay? What I mean by that is, you're a good person, and you follow the rules, but the enemy doesn't bother you, (laughs) because you're not dangerous. You're not dangerous for the kingdom of God. There's a, a quote by a guy by the name of John Shedd. He's a professor, he's a, an author, and the quote goes like this, a ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. A ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. Some of you follow the rules, but you don't actually follow Jesus. A Jesus who will call you sometimes into messy places. A Jesus who will call you into difficult places. A Jesus who will send you out, sometimes send you across the street. But if the ship is just in harbor, you're just playing it safe, collecting shells. Don't waste your life. Don't waste 
your life. Fight this war with everything you've got. God, I thank you for a difficult conversation. I thank you for Paul a long time ago who was willing to speak it to a young man that he cared about so very much and a church that he cared about so very much. God, today, I think it is divine appointment a chance for us to hear a truth, be reminded for some of us, a battle, a war that rages all around us, we play it down. We'd rather talk freedom, we'd rather talk joy, but there are moments, God, when we need to be reminded we've got to fight. And that there is a responsibility There is an obligation. There is duty that comes with this. God, I'm asking today that you would call our hearts back to that. God, my heart today, so, God, it so leans in these students who have just come back from a week. God, where they have served together, they have worshiped together, they've seen you move together. But God, if we don't hear and we just go back to the normalcy of our life and the routines that we normally follow without understanding, God, what we have got to be disciplined in, a discipline of coming together, a discipline of being in your word. God, we've gotta be reminded. We know our hearts, we won't make it. God, I pray today that you would encourage them. I pray today that you would strengthen them. I pray today that you would give them God, a desire not just to follow the rules, but to follow Jesus. God, I pray for those in this room. I pray for those who will hear my voice need to turn to you. A turning to you in faith, a turning to you to trust. God, today will you give us faith and will you help us follow? Thank you, God for loving us this much. In the name of Jesus.